Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. On today's show, actress Anna Ferris. The icon herself talks about filming her first major film role, Scary Movie. I truly believe that part of what made the Scary Movie, Regina and I have talked about this, I think successful, not all of this, but part of it was this bizarre friendship between this fucking ding-dong Cindy Campbell, who is this one-dimensional character, and Brenda, who is also, we, I think we were all pretty much one-dimensional characters, but the absurdity uh, between the two of us was fun to watch, I think, and I think that, that that was overlooked. Working on the hit CBS series, Mom, I loved the puzzle solving of like, why the fuck would I cross over there? Oh, I'm gonna get that thing and I'll cross on that line and that'll set up Allison better for, like I liked the mechanics, but in the mechanics, there is an expectation of line delivery, of the rhythm of a line. And if I broke that, it fucked up other people's jokes. And oftentimes I was the pitcher to the batter. It was very intimidatingly clear from day one that you have to bring your game. Telling her own story on her terms. I do feel sometimes not dishonest, but less than generous when I feel like I can't tell my whole story a bit yet. And maybe there'll be a day, but there's so many players involved that have so much at stake. How Hollywood has changed her I have been on the hamster wheel of self-obsession for 44 years now. And I like that quarantine, it feels like, has shifted some priorities for me in a really nice way. I like the idea of looking outside myself a bit. All that and so much more. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. And now I'll do a little Shelly. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm joined once again by my producer, Matt, a.k.a. Stormageddon. Matt, hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Good, how are you? <laughs> Good. I'm. It's like we're rec- we usually record these on the weekends. We're recording at the end of day on a Friday, and I'm like full of energy. I think I'm just happy this week is over. Friday energy feels very, very different than Saturday morning energy. I agree. But I wanted to take a little bit of time today before we get to our interview to talk about a Kardashian, which is really something I have always been pretty 
unopinionated about like the Kardashians as a concept uh, it's something I've just never really felt that strongly about but something happened and it's in the news cycle and I kind of want to like contextualize it and uh, sort of see if there's a there there to the conversation um, I want to chat specifically about Khloe Kardashian the Streisand effect and the conundrum of body positivity so here's the story Mary Jo Shannon, who I'm told is the 86-year-old grandmother to the Kardashian clan, snapped a photo of Khloe Kardashian, and that photo was uploaded to social media by an assistant. Khloe was not happy about it. Quote, the color edited photo was taken of Chloe during a private family gathering and posted to social media without permission by mistake by an assistant, said Tracy Romulus, the chief marketing officer for KKW Brands. She actually gave a statement in which she decided to uh, give this airtime. She continued. Of course she did. Chloe looks beautiful, but it but it is within the right of the copyright owner to not want an image not intended to be published taken down. End quote. As quick as that photo was going viral, Team Kardashian was hard at work trying to get the photo scrubbed from the internet. They even began issuing DMCA, or Digital Millennium Copyright Act, notices to try and enforce copyright protections. Over the last week, various social media users have claimed their accounts were temporarily blocked and tweets deleted, and some have even received direct legal warnings in their inboxes. In response to this, Chloe released a very very lengthy four slide statement accompanied by three videos of her flexing her quote revenge body in an effort to prove what exactly I am not sure. I'm going to read just a snippet of the caption because if I were to read the entire caption, it would be the entire length of this podcast. Quote, the photo that was posted this week is beautiful, but as someone who has struggled with body image her whole life, when someone takes a photo of you that isn't flattering in bad lighting or doesn't capture your body the way it is after working so hard to get it to this point, and then shares it to the world, you have every right to ask for it to not be shared, regardless of who, who you are. It's almost unbearable trying to live up to the impossible standards that the public have all set for me. Hmm. End quote. Whether this was simply in jest or a veiled admission to talk about impossible standards when her family members themselves have created these standards, which are central to their fame and fortune, is both ironic and disappointing, wrote BuzzFeed's Aid Anobita. So there was the coverage of the bizarre what happened and then the coverage of Chloe's bizarre response. And now there's coverage by way of think pieces surrounding where this all nets out. Tell me, Matt, before I brought this topic to you, was this incredibly important news item on your radar? And either way, now that it is, where do you net out about it? Um, so, yes, I mean, it's funny you asked that question, Evan, but you know the answer. Um, no, uh, this was not on my radar until you brought it to my attention. The Kardashians, I mean, you'd have to live under a rock forever to not know who they are. But Where is that rock? <laughs> right? Take uh, me to it. We'll take vacation there. We'll, we'll go to that rock together. Yeah. Um, but, like, so, of course, I know who they are. And, and, yeah, I had no idea any of this had happened. And I didn't know until you sent me the article. And where do I net out on it? I don't know. I think it's all just a spiral of stupid I think that's oversimplification, but like you said it best in your little summation. Like, I feel like she has no com right to complain about body standards and body positivity when her family is the cause of rush of like impossible body standards and making people feel bad about their bodies. Like, that was their whole brand, at least I, as far as I understand it. And it just, it just all feels really ridiculous. Like, look, of course, I'm for body positivity. Obviously, I am for people, you know, I hate body shaming. And, you know, I'm for people standing up for themselves and feeling comfortable with themselves online. But, like, 
this just feels like an extreme that is bizarre on a level. Look, social media has changed a lot of things, but like DMCA takedowns for photos mm. that her grandmother took. Like I just to li- like I can't even imagine what living in that family is like. Like I don't know. I, I unfortunately don't have any of my grandparents around anymore, but I like I cherish my moments with my grandparents and photos they've taken of me. And I feel like those kinds of family members see you in the best light all the time probably and like i don't know it just it all seems very shrewd and very stupid it's a word i keep coming back to and not the body like not feeling good about your body and of course especially as a woman on the internet wanting to take down a photo that doesn't make you feel good or people are shaming you for whatever like all of that i get i just feel like with chloe it's so i want to say ironic but i don't even know if irony at this point is the right word to capture how ridiculous all of this is i don't know and i think that's the best i can my brain can spit out on this friday but what about you evan like i feel like you obviously have opinions on this and i'm curious where you stand on it i don't have like incredibly strong opinions about it i'm more captured by sort of like i'm struck by all of all of the opinions that have come from this and sort of trying to parse out some sort of understanding of like what has people feeling all certain types of ways i would say more than anything i find i find the whole thing very odd and as we've talked about often on this podcast this is a classic case of the streisand effect it's literally just to review this is basically pointing at something and saying hey don't look at that and it's like human nature to then want to look at it as a result it feels very odd because i think had this photo we would not be talking about this photo had all of the the everything after the fact happened and not for nothing and i guess this is subjective i guess to an extent it's not an unflattering photo of chloe in fact it's just like not a uh, in all of the many photos that circulate of the kardashians this one is just very innocuous um So the fact that it's become this centerpiece of discussion, especially considering it seems as though Chloe does not want us to be discussing it, but then made this big post about, again, I go back to me just thinking this is very odd. And I think this is really a a clear example of it can be both. It can be that people are unfairly harsh on Khloe Kardashian and picking apart her every flaw and imperfection. And no doubt that has got to be hard. I'd also conjecture many people would wager that the good that comes with being Khloe Kardashian, namely the money, far outweighs those criticism, which can largely, if chosen, be drowned out. Because this is like one of the big things I think is important in these situations is you, Khloe Kardashian, you, Matt, you, myself, you, whomever, have the choice to log out and not participate in the conversation. And I understand when you're someone as famous as that, perhaps easier said than done. I get it. But at the same time, it's like you have to kind of live your life. And if you're going to put your life out there as they have and as they know this, you are susceptible to criticism, fair and unfair. Um, but I think the bigger issue here is the confusing message that someone like Chloe seems to be sending. This idea that because people have criticized her body, she got it into shape. So then today, the bullying, the message, again, this, I, I'm mixing up my words because my brain is mixed up and trying to understand. Basically, what I'm sensing from this is like bullying works. It's basically saying that like, I want this old photo of who I was taken down because of all of you guys making fun of me over the years. I had to get my body to where it is at today. And so I do not want that remnant to exist of the body that I once had when I was made fun of. Not for nothing, 
Chloe is consistently made fun of today, but the thing that people are making fun of quite often is the photoshopping and the face tuning and perhaps the plastic surgery. And so I think that when we talk about body shaming, there's so much gradient here. I don't think she is the person to lead the conversation when it comes to body shaming. I want to say this though, Chloe should have the body she wants to have at whatever size and by whatever means she chooses. But in trying to have old photos of her removed, and aggressively so might I add, it seems to create the perception that the old her, the one that wasn't in the shape she is in today, is not worthy of being seen. And that's a troubling message. Be that as it might be how she feels, and of course she's entitled to that, it does just create this perception of, you guys all bullied me and I no longer, as a result of this bullying, and again, I'm gonna go back to that bullying works thing. That to me is, is part of the message I take away from this. I also think that putting up these IG posts um, it leaves little room for conversation. The thing is, like, I do think there's a world in which Khloe Kardashian hops on an Instagram live with somebody that is in the body positive space that kind of does the, the groundwork for this on the daily, who has made it their life's work and has a meaningful conversation. Like, I do think that there is a, a way in which this whatever can lead to something productive. Um, but just putting up the IG post is unsatisfactory because the way it reads for me is you're hearing one tentacle of the criticism and there are many other tentacles that you are either choosing not to hear or just blatantly ignoring. And zooming out, I think this specific issue underlines the complexities of body positivity as a cultural conversation. I've always been struck by the fact that body positivity, despite being marked as such, is not a movement as it does not have a uniform goal. I don't think loving your body is necessarily the trajectory for everyone to go down. I don't love my body. I just hate my body less over time. And I get it, that's not a marketable sentiment, I realize, but that is my truth and it's one that is my journey. Might I love my body someday? Perhaps, if I never do, that's also okay. Even if I live the rest of my life hating my body, that too is okay. I think the productive part of this is being able to speak mm -hmm. about it more and remove the shame. And so to me, part of like the body positive thing is like, I love my body. It's like, I want to normalize, this is going to sound weird. I want to normalize hating your body. Not that I think it's a good thing to hate one's body, but I think it's okay to be in that stage of, uh, of self-acceptance in which you're not quite there. Because I think by making it all about positivity, for someone who's not feeling the positivity, you feel alienated from the cause. And I think that this is a confusing news item in a lot of ways, but mainly because we don't net out anywhere. If Chloe thinks she looks beautiful in that photo, as she said, then there shouldn't be any issue with it being seen. There are far more unflattering photos of her out there, but she does have an issue, clearly. But again, it leaves confusion as to how we should feel. And especially, how is a young person supposed to feel that looks at that old photo of Chloe, thinks she looks great, thinks that that's a wonderful photo of a person who looks fabulous, who looks happy, and says, oh, well, Chloe is, that, that photo was not up to snuff with Chloe. And so if my body looks like that, or, or I aspire to have my body look like that, the message I'm getting is, oh, wait, that's not okay. I should want the body 
of the body that in, that she's now showing off in the very lengthy apology carousel, which featured her showing off her body. Confusing. So I don't really have an in-conclusion. I just wish we'd find more worthwhile conversations to have about bodies as they exist and less focus on before and afters and more focus on the in-between and the reality that we're just about always somewhere in the in-between. And I will go back to something I just said, but it's like, I just, I don't want to be looking to Khloe Kardashian. And this is honestly no disrespect for Khloe Kardashian. I don't really know a ton about her. I just don't think that she needs to be the person that we look to, to have these conversations. But what's clear to me from how much this conversation has been elevated, and I realize like I'm giving it space. So like, you know, not for nothing. But what what I, what I take away from that is that like, clearly a conversation needs to be had that seems to be precipitated by this, but I don't think we've landed on the conversation. And so my goal today was just kind of like to say, like, I'm thinking a lot about this and less as it has to do with Chloe and sort of the convoluted messages that, and I don't think Chloe is like an anomaly here. I think that we get a lot of these sorts of confusing messages from all types of folks actors, people in sports, entertainers of all ilks. Um, so that's where I landed on it. And uh, I i don't know where we'll go from here, but um, that is the, the Khloe Kardashian of it all. Anything else you want to add? I mean, I think it's important, like what you're talking about with body positivity, like you, you, the yous, the you, Evan, the you, me's, the you out there listening, define what that means for you, right? I think fat shaming is blanketly bad obviously but like i think body positivity you have to you it's your body you have to figure out what you want if you want to work out if you want to lose weight if you want to change your shape that's your decision as long as it's your decision like the the fat shaming thing i remember or like the muddled version vision of what we should accept as our bodies is with kamal nanjiani who i love i've loved kamal nanjiani for ages he's an incredible comedian i've met him several times delightful man when he started training for the movie The Eternals, which is a Marvel movie he's going to be in, and he re- he released that photo of him being jacked, people went gaga. And I did too. He looked excellent. But I also thought his previous pre-Marvel body was also excellent. And I think there's a lot of like, you know, and I'm the last person to complain about men but beauty standards because obviously women have it a lot worse, but like... It just the, those that kind of messaging is always confusing. Like when people are just losing their minds for him when he's jacked, but it, he wasn't okay before that. I don't know. Like those conversations around that time were also very muddled. And it's tricky because I will say I I don't know if it's I don't know if I, I was gonna say I'm part of the problem. I don't, I don't know if I don't even know if that is what it is. But I am the kind of person that like is susceptible to posting those quote unquote after photos of a person yeah. and being like holy fuck because. My jaw does drop. I am wowed by it. But I also think that it instills, even sometimes subconsciously, this idea of what I'm trying to talk about, like the after and the value of the after erasing the value of the before and not allowing for both to be good. It's somehow sort of, it goes back to like, I know she had that show, like Revenge Body. And that, that sort of idea that it's like, that it's it seems to me like we have this obsession with it's like we're obsessed with the butterfly 
And it's like, well, poo-poo to the caterpillar, but like the caterpillar had a whole life, yeah. right? And like the butterfly is informed by all of the experiences that it had as a caterpillar. I don't know where I'm going with that, but <laughs> I, I just think that's one of my takeaways from that is, I, and again, I said this earlier, it's like, I'm not netting out with a conclusion here, but I do recognize my own role in all of this. And I do not think that I am participating in making it better, but I am interested in having more conversations about this. And hopefully this is, this is a topic that we will continue to cover in a more meaningful way moving forward. Without any further ado, I'm so excited. Uh, this is a very, very big get in the land of Shut Up Evan. And I'm delighted at just, I, I, I knew she was gonna be great. And she, she gave me something a little bit of a level up from that. And so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna toot her horn anymore. I'll let, um, I'll let her words speak for themselves. So without any further ado, here is our interview with the lovely and talented Anna Ferris. Let's get into it. She really needs no introduction, but let's give it a whirl anyway. She is an actress and podcast host whose film credits include the leading role of Cindy Campbell in the Scary Movie franchise, The Hot Chick, Lost in Translation, Brokeback Mountain, The House Bunny, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, The Dictator, The Emoji Movie, and more, as well as starring opposite Allison Janney on CBS's Mom for seven seasons. She is also the recipient of a 2007 Stony Award for Stonette of the Year for her performance in Greg Araki's Smiley Face. Her advice podcast, Unqualified, launched in 2015 and remains at the top of the charts to this day. Her memoir of the same name was published in 2017 and became a New York Times bestseller, which is rightfully where it belonged. I'm gooped that she knows we exist and that she's here with us now. I could go on and on, but I don't want to waste another minute. She is hilarious. She is informed. She is unafraid. She is pragmatic. She is inspiring. She is generous, especially for making time to be here today. She is the great and powerful Anna Ferris. I want to thank you before we start. Like I am just enormously grateful for your time. Thank you guys. I am so, I, first of all, I'm a huge admirer of your podcast. You guys are, are both so eloquent and intelligent and have such a highly entertaining, relevant podcast. So thank you for having me on here. And also thank you for, I, I, oh yeah, I was telling you about the camper van adventures. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's up with that? Well, so last March we bought a used camper van, like a 19 foot Airstream. True. It's a small thing. It looks like a fun size <laughs> RV. And uh, anyway, it broke down. It was like a piece of shit. But we spent a lot of time on the road and we would take the podcast equipment. Oh. We were like anywhere from like, you know, some cabin in Montana to we also bought a really small boat. Like I say that with embarrassment and I want to stress the really small part because it is. <laughs> It is really is it like a one person boat. <laughs> kind of. It really is. I love how the latest unqualified when you specified with your pool, you were like, I like to turn the pool up to 100 degrees, but it's a really small pool. It's a small pool. It's a small RV. We like things petite. I get it. I get it. I sure do. My identity growing up was like the short girl. And I came mm. from kind of a tall family. So I don't know if it's like my Napoleon complex. Like I can, <laughs> I can control things if they're tinier. I get it. Well, I want to echo that sentiment back to you. I am such a huge fan of your podcast and have been for so long. I want to point out one thing I particularly like about your interview style. There's a question in the latest episode, the Brie Larson and Jesse Ennis episode, when you ask, instead of saying, what would you do if you weren't an actor? You phrase it by saying, what would you do if acting was illegal? And I just think that that small detail 
style to me encapsulates the way you approach interview in such just an interesting way that makes it so fun as the listener to sort of hear where the guest is going to go. It's really just riveting. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I wanted to ask advice from you guys. How do you draw out information from people that are guarded and closed? I mean, I know it's a long conversation, of course, but I bet you guys can now, well, probably always, but you start to get a sense if somebody is, guarded is kind of an incorrect word. Maybe if they've told their story or if their story is kind of cemented in their head without... I don't know, I guess without sort of, because this format requires an right. openness. I mean, I think two things. One, I think that I just take a little bit of a pause and allow them for a little bit of space to continue on. I often find that people sort of will say more if you build in that awkward pause because they will try and fill it. So that's like one sort of like easy trick, but also- That's a good I mean, one, it's Evan. Good. It's, it's also easy because you just, you just do nothing. But another really one that I've tried to employ lately is like a pre-interview in which I sort of get a sense from the guest, what are the things that you have spoken about ad nauseum that you're sick of talking about? And I think like that came into play on last week's episode we had a transgender model named Roe Bergdorf on, and I knew that throughout the many interviews of hers that I listened to, she speaks at length about being trans because she's asked about it all the time. And I was like, I bet there are many aspects of you that you don't get asked about that you're, you're really interested in. And so we spent 15 minutes of the interview talking about Britney Spears, which has nothing to do with Monroe, but is a subject matter that she's interested in. So I think some people are just less comfortable talking about themselves, but can, you can access bits of who they are by talking about things you have in common versus them just like recounting stories from their childhood. Not always, but often. That's great advice. Sometimes I will, I'll say something like, like what are the questions on a press junket? You know, the questions you're tired of. But uh, yeah, I think that that is the biggest challenge and it's really a relief to be a guest on somebody else's podcast. Well, it's a relief for me to be in conversation that knows the art of the podcast, that knows the art of chat. My first love to me, especially growing up, is like those chat shows and just watching people spitball back and forth. So I do want to ask some questions about your podcast because you were sort of an early pioneer of the podcast. I know you weren't the first, but you kind of got into the arena before it sort of became in vogue as it is today. And on that latest episode of your podcast that I mentioned, when you were in conversation with Bree and Jesse, you mentioned that a lot of the impetus to start the podcast in the beginning was feeling like you didn't have control of your voice and that this would be a forum for you to have that control. What was it about the, the media cycle or where you were at in your life or career at the time that made you feel that way? I love this question, Evan. Thank you. It's actually, I look back, you know, memory sharpens itself or becomes, I don't know, at least you associate memory with, a, with an emotion. First of all, I've always loved advice columns. You know, I grew up reading them. I grew up listening to Loveline. Dan Savage was a big influencer. My, sure. I, like I read The Stranger, like religiously. I was a big fan of podcasts. I listened to them all the time. I wanted to be able to talk to strangers without kind of a, the cloak of celebrity. I wanted at least to attempt that. I loved Chat Roulette. That was yes. until it was all like masturbators. And I, I kind of, there was a point when I thought single-handedly I could shift this. Yeah. But I couldn't. Um, <laughs> so so I, I was, I was longing for sort of that 
personal outreach with like just a stranger connection. And then on top of that, being on mom, and in fact, I haven't told this story, but during renegotiations one year, right after I'd started the podcast, I slipped in there. Like I, I want to keep my podcast safe from, and at the time it was so new. They were like, sure. What the fuck? I don't know. She has a (laughs) podcast. What the fuck is a podcast? And so I was able to clear all of that and it felt powerful. Like shit, man, I can just roam freely with my own story. However I want to shape it. Right. And that felt really good. Not that I think that I've had to use that really, but it's nice to have that feeling. Just having that comfort and that security. Do you guys feel that at all? Like if you fuck up at all, at least you have a platform where you can explain things or tell your story. And and that's a nice sense um, to have it when you when you feel a bit exposed in this world. Absolutely. I feel like in this forum, it's like if people are coming to listen to this podcast or unqualified, they've already crossed a barrier of interest, which is that like they have some sort of allegiance with you. I feel like they're less likely to hate listen to a podcast than they are to hate tweet or those things, which I think are just easy. They take two seconds. They're very thoughtless. Finding a podcast, hitting play, committing to listening to it. I feel like there's just sort of an unspoken bond that you have with the host. Not that you agree with everything that they say, but that you're going to consider their words more. And I feel a bit more safety in terms of if I have a less popular opinion, I feel way more comfortable discussing it in this forum than I would on social media, just because I think people are looking for things to get mad about more on social media than they are in podcasts. And that makes it feel inherently safer. Evan, I love, I think you're completely right. I love that answer. And I, oh, one important detail though that I always forget to mention is that when I started the podcast, I didn't intend to do any celebrity interviews. I thought I would have like five listeners and I wanted to talk to strangers and I wanted to like attempt to give advice or to have like a, a dialogue. I wanted to talk to people about their relationship issues and I wanted to be able to tell my own, I guess. Even though it's sort of an, that's, I don't know. I I do feel sometimes not dishonest, but less than generous when I feel like I can't tell my whole story a bit yet. And maybe there'll be a day, but there's so many players involved that have so much at stake. And there have been so many times when I've wanted to say, oh my God, yes. Like that same fucking thing happened to me. But I, I, I think I need to curb myself. So I'll, I'll use a lot of cloaked things. You know, I'll say like, oh, well, I had an ex that whatever. I was going to say there are times I listen to your podcast and I'll pick up on sort of a little aside and it feels like a sort of an off road and we don't always go down the off road, but it sort of makes it clear like there's a road that, as you said, maybe one day we'll go down, maybe we won't. But I, I, I feel like you are, I as a listener, I never feel like you're not forthcoming. I sort of recognize the, the boundary that comes with living a very public life. But you did mention the fact that you didn't intend for there to be the celebrities and yet there are celebrities. There are a ton of celebrities. There are great celebrities. I wanted to mention some of my favorite guests that have been on your pod and just if a word or a sentence comes to mind about them I was wondering if you would share I love this Evan okay I'll see if I can remember yeah, yeah. so first up <laughs> is my favorite guest you've ever had on the podcast which would be Lisa Kudrow oh yes yeah Lisa was incredible 
that was when we used to podcast in our dining room. And that was really fun for a number of reasons, those early years, because a lot of celebrities didn't do podcasts. So it was a really exciting time. And we were obviously in person. We would sit around the dining room table. We would eat. We would have some wine. We would like, it felt such like a loosey-goosey, low-stakes, fun environment that I think has been modified now that podcasts are fairly ubiquitous. Most celebrities have an opinion if they like to do them or not. I mean, back then, most celebrities we had had never done a podcast. And you guys must feel this too, as you as you reach out. I'm sure some people are like, they don't like to do podcasts or, right? Like, Yeah, and a lot of like, do not asks. But it's funny because I feel like some of the most famous people that we've had on the show have been the most easy peasy. We had Olivia Wilde on the premiere of season two and that was like, it went down in the DMs. She was like, set a date over. We got on the microphone. It was so easy. And I also think that a good interview sort of recognizes the inherent boundaries of the uh, the generosity of their guests and sort of recognizing the fact that not everything is for the public domain. Okay, so other guests I want to know about, uh, Rosie O'Donnell. I love Rosie. Me too. I love her so much. And she was a guest star on Mom a few times. And um, she's just fantastic. She has such a, um, how can I put it? Almost like the warmest, what's like a, I guess, almost like a ringleader presence about her. And she would come on to set and she is, without being off-putting in any fucking way and only in an embracing way, she is very much like, you know, this is who I am. I love you. She was like, she would come on to set like singing and da- like just <laughs> a fucking delight. Yeah. And I, I love, I loved what an open book she was. And I, I admire her so much. I, I want her a part of my life. Talk about someone though, you know, when we're talking about the art of chat, I feel like a lot of people think of Rosie as the former co-host of The View and don't take into mind the fact that like her talk show back in the day, not only was so popular, but it was popular for a reason. There was a reason why celebrities loved going on and being in conversation with Rosie. And that's because there was a level of respect that Rosie had for her guests and also a desire to present them in their best light that I think that as we've moved into an era of more like gotcha interview style, which I understand that's sort of the way the the news media works today. But back in that time, I really feel like she made people feel comfortable. I always go back and watch her early interviews with Britney Spears and no one treated Britney Spears with as much respect as Rosie O'Donnell and not for nothing. It's always a relief to not have that guard up, especially I think when I was doing those shows, I was young and very much perceived, I think, as like a ditzy actress or however, whatever the, which I was kind of grateful for, to keep the expectations low. <laughs> if I say a three-syllable word, maybe somebody will think, oh, she's smarter yeah. than I thought. <laughs> but I, like, I look back on those experiences just feeling kind of terrified. The talk show experience is a very, it feels like you're playing a, this heightened, odd version of yourself that feels... Hmm. Like you're laughing too much or you're telling a 
mildly amusing story that's supposed to be quite fun. I don't know. Well, also, I guessed it on Watch What Happens Live a couple months ago, and I remember not realizing until I was suddenly put in that position where you have such little time to tell any story. Such a difference. Especially with that one. Exactly. But like such a difference between podcasting, which is long form, but those late night shows, it's like everything has to be consolidated and bite sizable. And so on top of the pressures that you're speaking to, it's like not only do you have to come in there and kind of just... You, you have to wham, bam, bang, and just get in there and and try and get into a flow. And then once you're in that flow, I imagine just as quickly as you found it, it's over. Totally. Yeah. Okay. 100%. couple more guests I want to ask you about. Kelly Clarkson, the icon, the legend. I love, I, I, I Evan, I feel terrible that I'm not uh, being very specific in my compliments <laughs> towards these people. I loved Kelly and I went on her show and I, like, she is so warm and friendly. I think we did some kind of puppy Super Bowl thing. I had no idea what was going. There were like dogs running around. Anyway, I admire celebrities that can approach fame without without cynicism or apology. You know, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And Kelly Kelly feels very much that way to me. Mm. Okay, last one, just a queer icon. You had RuPaul on your podcast, someone who does not frequent the podcast circuit. What was that like? Oh my God, he is so beautiful mm. and so, so smart, otherworldly in a sense, the way his brain works, I think. And his skin is like no other. <laughs> Oh my God. I, that's, that's what I wrote, but he, and just a statuesque man and, and intimidating. Like I think everyone, every guest isn't, is intimidating in a specific way for me. I do find my heart like kind of racing every, every time we had Gwyneth Paltrow. Was it a couple weeks ago? Anyway. Heard of her. And, <laughs> and, but it was supposed to be at 10 30, but on their end, they thought it was 9.30. So I like, I, I'm already kind of, I'm anxious. And then at like, I don't know, 9.50, they were like, Gwyneth's, Gwyneth's on right now. She's waiting for you. And I just, I think the first five minutes were just like, oh, me, just. I feel like Gwyneth is waiting for you would be like the five most important words you would ever hear like uttered to you. Just like the, the day I ever hear Gwyneth is waiting for you, I've peaked. So Oh my god! I mean, and the and the problem was I don't think she knew that it was a problem from her end. Oh so no! You're I, the late one suddenly. No, exactly. So I was kind of in this like, like should I apologize? But then that means that I'm owning like right. the, I'm accepting this fuck up. <laughs> I think in the world of Gwyneth. You or or anyone is always in the wrong because I just inherently I want to believe Gwyneth is always in the right. That's the way I see it. But I totally understand that predicament. She said she was gonna send me a goop basket. Who doesn't want that? I goop want that basket, goop basket man. Right? for the Come vibrator on. alone. Oh my god! You released your memoir, Unqualified, in two thousand and seventeen. A lot has happened in the world, and no doubt your life since. What is one chapter you'd want to add to the book if you had the chance to print a second edition? God, Evan, what a great question. I was actually thinking yesterday, I'm not quite sure like what the timing was for my desire with a book at that time. Like, I don't think it was, I, I look back and I'm like, why the fuck then? I didn't have the time. I was the star of a show. Like I had a two-year-old 
I don't think I had enough story to tell almost, or at least enough learned. And, and I still think I don't, I guess. I hope that's not like a total cop-out answer. No, I mean- I, Are you guys employing the awkward pause that we talked about? I really need to do this. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I completely understand. I'm in the process of writing a book right now and I had no idea about the rigor. I mean, I knew inherently, but then in practice, it is a completely different experience and also just, you know, opening up an empty page in the morning and, and realizing, wow, this is not going to fill itself. Like it is, it is up to me to put down words and thoughts and, and then have them be like interesting and want people want, wanting to turn the page. It's a, it's a process. And psychologically though, don't you think like a book holds this stature completely <laughs> that yeah that that is totally daunting um sorry Evan I didn't mean to cut you off you didn't no but it sounds like you'd be interested more in revisiting a second book maybe later in life when you feel like there's more story to tell yeah I I think so I think so but I also you know the self-importance of celebrity I've been reflecting on that a bit too I think the interesting elements of my story are perhaps like, I think the feeling that we all have in terms of not feeling attractive enough, the search for identity. And I love it that you, that your podcast addresses identity so much, the two pronged element, how we identify ourselves and how society identifies us. And I have been on the hamster wheel of self-obsession for 44 years now. And I like that that actually quarantine, it feels like, has shifted some priorities for me in a really nice way. I like the idea of looking outside myself a bit. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I thought was really interesting in, in the discussion that you had with Jesse and Bree was when you, the three of you were in discussion about sort of the audition process, which is something as someone outside of the industry, I'm not really privy to. And you all were talking about the sort of rejection and the way it's delivered as far as you're not right for you're not the right type, you're not right for this part, and not really getting any kind of meaningful feedback and the way that you internalize that vague feedback to somehow say, somehow sometimes maybe feel like, oh, if I'm not right for the part, maybe something is wrong with me. Has your perspective on that shifted at all through quarantine when you're maybe having some realizations about the industry? Yes, it has. I, I've always felt like a fairly strong actor because I, I grew up doing theater in Seattle and I felt like, and not in all roles, I should say. <laughs> Um, I think that there is that there for for me at least there is a melding that needs to happen in terms of uh, sort of my vision and the the vision of the writer. But I feel like a strong actor, and so I don't. God, that sounds like a dick thing to say. No, it doesn't. doesn't. You are a strong actor. Thanks. Oh my God. Thanks. Well, sometimes, but it's, sometimes I don't know. Well, you know what it is. It's when I wrestle with a line of dialogue that feels so fundamentally unnatural. Mm -hmm. I think that is a gift of getting older mm. that I, I don't feel like I'm re I'm rejected maybe for different reasons, but I also have fewer opportunities to audition now. I auditioned for something which you guys probably heard and uh, a few months ago, but that was the first time I had auditioned in about seven years. And it was exciting to, to make myself like, 
you know, to throw my hat in the ring and wait for the rejection. Like when I first moved to Los Angeles, well, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I had already booked scary movie. So I was really fortunate that, um, and I kind of knew I was a good auditioner in some ways. I felt strong in the room because how can you deny when you are, when you're really feeling and believing mm-hmm. the, the emotion on the page. So it's the childish part of me can say like to myself, well, uh, they may have made a little bit of, mis- of a mistake because I think I could have done something kind of interesting with that. But I also do believe that perhaps the shoe fits, you know, like if somebody else gets the role, I can totally, I can totally see that. Yeah, that makes sense. Evan, did I answer your question I, you, at all? No, you did. I, I guess one thing, if I were to revisit it a little bit, I'm just interested. You mentioned how some things come with age. I'm wondering if with age comes that ability to detach the idea that because you were rejected from the role, that that somehow says something about your worth as a human. It's not 100%, but it's definitely shifted. Like maybe when I was in my 20s, rejection abs- absorption would be, you know... I was pretty good at passing it off at, at, you know, I would throw away my script as soon as the audition was over. There's is something related when I was in high school before we had like when we had wall plug in phones, (laughs) (laughs) but I, if a guy, if I, I was usually obsessed with one guy for like five years. And um, if I thought, that things were getting close to him calling me, I would take the phone off the hook in my bedroom. And so it would piss off my family because nobody could call, but I just couldn't bear, I couldn't bear him not calling. So I just eliminated the, the option, I guess. Mm. But, and I think there was something about that with auditioning too. I also have, kind of really thought about this time in terms of, I don't know if I've ever wanted to give acting in this career, my full heart and well, that's not exactly the correct phrasing, but when I was in college, I was auditioning for this Tom Stopper play. And I was at this point in my life where I was majoring in drama and I had done all this theater in Seattle. I never talked to anybody. I was I was really quiet. I went through this period though, around the same time where I would wear these like garter belts and like little plaid skirts. Like for the first time I felt like a sexual creature in college. I could change my identity from high school. I would wear these like thigh high boots, like all, everything like plastic. Like I was a little raver girl at the time but yet very quiet. And um, this older actor who I'd known for a while in Seattle, I walked out of the audition. He said, how'd it go? And I said, "Um, you know, I don't know. And he said, hey, listen, kid, if you can do anything else, do it. And I, I thought, well, God, like, yeah, I can. And do I need that feeling that he has to be successful? And I decided that I, I wasn't sure that I had that because there were other things I enjoyed and I did not want my happiness to be so like dictated by, by a director. I didn't want to, I didn't want to give it the power to break my heart. There you go. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Okay, I do want to walk through some of your filmography. We have to. It's so important okay. to me. I love it, Evan. Thank um, you. I am so I am such a fan of so many of your roles. So this is particularly very exciting. So let's start with Scary Movie. Scary Movie is okay. fascinating to me in that it's the kind of film that didn't have a ton of rubric before it. And in fact, it became a rubric for a whole genre that emerged in its wake. What was your understanding of this movie in terms of whether or not it was funny, if the humor would translate? It just feels like we, oh my we know God. it to be so funny right now, but what was filming it like when it might have seemed a little bit absurd? Oh, God, Evan, it, it felt, I was really scared. I was really scared the whole time for every, like with everything. I had done some stuff before, but nothing like this. Like I barely knew like a mark. So the, the whole technical experience was terrifying. And then sort of the idea of it too. I remember after I got the role that weekend, I, I so I sent in a tape. They asked me to fly down to, from Seattle. They asked me to fly down to Los Angeles to audition. I auditioned for a week. I thought I was only going to be in Los Angeles for a day. My mom like gave me miles. I was crashing on a new friend's couch. And I, and I, and I ended up getting the role. And my parents were away on a family camping trip. And I felt so alone. I felt this odd core of like euphoria that I could not share of like, fuck, I, I am in this movie that I like, and my cultural awareness was very minimal. I, I was aware of in living color kind of, but I really didn't know anything. I, I was in college without a television. I didn't really grow up with uh, my mom didn't really let me watch television very much at all. I was very uh, pop culturally deprived. I didn't, which also kept me very unpopular. <laughs> Thanks, mom. <laughs> she wouldn't let me like read any like 17 or watch MTV. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But that feeling of aloneness really carried with me throughout the the shooting of the movie. And, and I remember like the scene where I get sprayed to the ceiling with come, I remember shooting that and just being like, just having to have so much trust in the tone of the movie. That's exactly what I was getting at and asking you this question was there's just moments that is such a great example where thankfully it totally works. But I just imagine before you had the the knowledge that people were tapped into the tone and, and the style of humor that this franchise built, I imagine at the time getting reading that in the script must have been a little odd. And Evan, you, you guys, Matt and Evan, you guys probably get the sense from me that like there's something fundamentally naive about me. I, and I've done a lot of like, I don't know, pretty fucking experimental things. I think that maybe society would consider a little, I don't know, risky, but there's still something about me that is so, I think that is, um, it's not that I'm not cynical because I wouldn't describe myself as a glass half full kind of person, but there is like a little core of sincerity or something of that 
I'm not, I'm not a particularly sarcastic person at all. So I think that that also, that whatever that fundamental thing was right for Cindy Campbell. <laughs> hey, it worked. <laughs> but it was a very scary and thrilling experience. And then, of course, I had no idea. Every step of the process, even like, you know, nine months later when the movie was released, my agent called and said that it, it made like 15 million on a Friday night. I had no idea what that meant. I just, I remember like, I, I had never kept track of box office. We were at a point in our culture when really that wasn't part of, if you were, if you weren't in the industry, I don't think you paid attention so much to, right? right. Like, yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, so there's a lot. I, I want to get make sure I get to the right ones, but I do want to yes, mention. Yes, sorry, Evan. No, you're fine. Just plow through my baloney. Okay, but I do want to mention Hot Chick Briefly, Iconic, Lost in Translation. What a, what a spin. But I do want to talk. Let's zero in on Brokeback Mountain. Okay. Because first of all, your character's name is LaShawn, and I think we just need to take a moment for that. But this was absolutely a groundbreaking movie for its time, both in its nuanced depiction of gay longing and for seeing two big Hollywood actors take on gay roles that weren't at all caricatures. Did you have any idea of like the gravity of the project that you were taking on when you first got on this set? I read that script. It was so beautiful. I was a fan of E. Annie Prue. I loved the shipping news. I loved how she wrote about, she wrote about like these lonely, hard protagonists from a distance, almost from like a masculine point of view uh, or it, it, at least in its solitude, I think, and in its hardness, its sort of rawness. And I love, so I loved, I was really drawn to her writing. And then when I had done Lost in Translation, and so I was sort of in like folk, I was on focus, focus features radar a bit. So I auditioned to play Anne Hathaway's character in front of Aang. And, and that, that was amazing. I didn't get that, but I didn't clearly, I, w I don't know if I would have opted to have played the smaller role, but then, <laughs> so they offered me the role of LaShawn and without auditioning. So, which was particularly terrifying because uh, usually you get a chance to prove what you're doing. Yep. I, so I flew up to Calgary. They were about four months into the shoot. I was only there, I think for three days for my, for my little scene. I had to work with a very specific dialogue coach. The crew was small, but everyone 
was incredible at their job. The wig maker used to do Andy Warhol's wigs. She would tell me stories about how, what I remember is that he would take antibiotics every day for like 50 years or something. But that movie, it, it was wonderful, not only just reading such a special script that was mind-blowingly good, but also having being a part of a project that was treated with such reverence on the set Mm. it was quiet and just beautiful you could see the beauty of the movie and I'm so proud to be a part of it and I I have a lot of opinions about award stuff because I can because I've never been nominated (laughs) but I'm just really really proud to be a part of that movie and I I I don't quite understand why I didn't win Best Picture. Agreed. Not that I need. No, no. Uh, like my my own like emotional investment is that like I don't. I. No, you are absolutely correct. Yeah. I want to interject. You are an award nominee and an award winner. You won the Stony Award for Stonet yes, of the Year. True. So let's not <laughs> overlook important yeah. details like that. Okay, so yeah. let's talk. So you do Scary Movie 3 in 2003, Scary Movie 4 in 2006. All four of the scary- uh, They just kept coming. They just kept coming, but they were still so good. All four of the Scary Movie films at the time starred you and Regina Hall. And then in 2013, we get Scary Movie 5 and you both do not appear. Struck me as odd. What can you illuminate to me about why we never got a proper fifth scary movie film? I love you guys. Um, well, <laughs> I think money. <laughs> yeah, sure. Such a good answer. Fair enough. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. You know, Regina and I, I think um, I love Regina <sighs> with like every cell of my body. Our friendship really kept me very I don't know we just I just love being around her she just we just made each other laugh or at least she made me laugh all the time but I think they didn't value the I I truly believe that part of what made the scary movie Regina and I have talked about this I think successful not all of this but part of it was this bizarre friendship between this fucking ding dong Cindy Campbell who is this one-dimensional character and Brenda, who is also, we, I think we were all pretty much one-dimensional characters, but the absurdity uh, between the two of us was fun to watch, I think. And I think that, that that was overlooked. I do wonder, I bet anything, if Keenan had still been at the helm. I think this was very much on the studio end of things. That makes sense. That, yeah. Yeah. So then in 2007 and 2008, you do two of my favorite Anna Ferris roles. So first we have Smiley Face, uh, directed by the legendary Greg Rocky, in which you play Jane F., a woman who eats a bunch of pot cupcakes and hijinks ensue. Talk to me about that film. It is so fucking bizarre. It is so fucking good. Were you familiar with the work of Greg Rocky prior to coming on? And, and how was that film sort of sold to you? Because... It's a mind fuck in the best way possible. Evan, this like I, I love talking about this movie because it was, it's still my favorite project that I've done for so many reasons. I think I got like five thousand dollars tacked in it. I, I hadn't known of Greg Araki. The script came my way, and originally Winona Ryder was supposed to do it. I just could not believe 
that a man wasn't playing this role, that this was a, because if you're familiar with the movie, the character is like sort of remarkably asexual and only has love for weed, only has, and everything else is, and so the liberation in playing that, it was the first time I think that I hadn't had to be at least slightly aware that I had a love interest or that my character was supposed to be uh, pursuing somebody. So that was really thrilling. It was a thrilling filmmaking experience because our budget was so small and we were like kind of, you know, just running around LA. I couldn't believe that I got to say such amazing dialogue. It was so fucking fun. And we had such great co-stars, but I think truly the the, the liberation in, in getting to play a character that I, I still am shocked when, that was written for a woman. And I kept asking Dylan, our writer, like, why, what, how did you do this for a woman? Thank you. And he was like, I don't know. I just always saw her that way, but it was, it was awesome. I, I loved it. So good. I encourage anyone listening to this that has not seen it or revisited it recently to do just that. Okay. Thanks, Evan. Now, The House Money. I feel like the main event. Um, of yes. all the films I watched in my younger days that I found hilarious then that I can still revisit now and laugh my fucking ass off, it is The House Money. It is a cinematic treasure. Criterion Collection, absolutely. Tell me anything and everything about making this film, please, but also what it was like stepping into the role of producer and having a little bit more control in the final product. Do you guys mind if I pee really quickly? <laughs> no. Not at all. Okay. Go for it. I'll, I'll be right back. I can't wait to talk about House Bunny. <laughs> Shelly. <laughs> oh. oh, my God. I'm almost done. I think, well, we're talking, but hey. As I put my headphones back in. Sorry. Okay. All right. We're, uh, I can get into House Funny, though. Um, so the writers of uh, Legally Blonde, Kirsten Smith and Karen Lutz, asked, they saw Just Friends and they asked uh, for a meeting with me for coffee. And it was at a time in my career where. I was starting to have this slow realization that I needed to be proactive. I felt like I had been, whether it, it was me or if it was my small body of work that had kind of defined me in a way that was increasingly becoming difficult, mm. I think, too. And it was also towards the end of like the teen movie, like things were shifting, you could feel it. So I started to think, fuck, you know, I'm at this weird level in my career where I just don't know if people know where to put me. <laughs> sure. So they asked me if I, we were at this coffee meeting. They said, you know, do you have any ideas for characters? And I said, well, I have been watching Girls Next Door a bit. And I was thinking about like, so what happens to the lower echelon? Like a, a girl who's been there for a while she maybe, you know, she's a little Miss Congeniality, but she's not the hottest. She's maybe a, a pleaser. And so as I'm sort of like chewing on this idea out loud, I said, you know, maybe she has, maybe she gets kicked out because she has like a meth addiction or maybe she won't like go down on somebody that I don't know, half wants her to. And she has to return to her very like maybe 
evangelical town or something where she has to, uh, you know, maybe she has an abusive stepfather. I don't know. So I'm like <laughs> spewing all this really dramatic. And, and so they were like, they were, <laughs> I remember them like looking at me and like, ha huh, ha, huh, all right, all right. And then like a week later, they said, so we liked your Playboy bunny idea. But what if she became a house mom at a sorority? <laughs> I was like, oh, if you guys think that'll sell <laughs> more than my mess head. All right. So we, 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 so we pitched it 24 times around wow. town. Yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing. And they're great pictures. And we consistently got great feedback. I would kind of dress up, not in full Shelly gear, but but I, I would dress a little sexier than I'm comfortable with. And then the very last one, we pitched to um, Happy Madison. And they were like, yeah, all right. I think they just really wanted to shoot at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the hindsight conclusion. But it was incredible. It was I, like within six weeks, we were shooting. And I, I remember just like looking around and... And like having like 200 people in downtown LA, like we're all working on this thing. And it was incredible. I really enjoyed the responsibility. And I think House Bunny, for different reasons, is right up there with Smiley Face in terms of the, the personal reward that I got out of it. I did not want a love interest. I didn't think it was necessary. I'm so glad that we had it though. But one of the battles that I won was they wanted um, a, a like a a very stereotypical hunky guy to play Colin Hanks's role, and I'm so glad that we that we got Colin because I wanted I, my argument was, and I think it's very accurate. My argument was like this is a character that this is the only way we can show. Growth is incorrect because I don't think that Shelly was ever really had an open heart towards people who had maybe blurry intentions. But this was her escape kind of from that world is by being attracted to somebody who has sort of a a pure heart like she does. Yeah, I mean... I feel like it's so expertly cast. Let me ask you this. Are you familiar? So your line in the film, the nipples are the eyes of the face, has had a second life of recent because- Really? Oh, yeah. So you don't know this. So your line was quoted on the most recent season of RuPaul's Drag Race UK by the queen that came in into the finals, Bimini Bonbulash, quoted you. And so all these people have been quoting Bimini, thinking it's a Bimini quote, many of whom are not realizing the origin of the quote. I have to send you this clip, but anyway, this clip, this moment is having a second life at present in the queer community. It's it's a wonderful thing. The eyes are the nipples of the face. Such a good movie. Thank you. Tell me this. I spoke to Trixie Mattel, who's a huge fan of yours, and she wanted me to ask you about camp. She basically said that mastering camp is a very specific balance and it's something that you do really, really well. I think of a moment in Scary Movie 3, you're in the hallway and there's there's a lamp and you say like, you don't want to knock over the lamp and so, and you almost knock it over and then you back away from it and you end up hitting a pillar and then another lamp, a bigger lamp, ends up falling on your head. And don't worry about that vase. The vase, oh, sorry, I didn't know it. Oh, <laughs> 
And it's just a, a microcosm of, of what I think encapsulates so much of your comedic timing, your, your comedic power, really. How much do you think about camp and sort of like, is it, is it an effort you make within your performance? Like, how do you calibrate creating camp? Do you? Well, first of all, when a plaster vase is really hitting you on the head and breaking over your skull, I, man, I, I had the best boot camp with those movies for many reasons, like being the lead and still having a super shitty trailer, like all of it, essentially, like not, not being treated with any kind of kid gloves, like get in there. Like, well, yeah, we're going to fucking hit you in the face with this airplane food cart. I, yeah, I remember a lot of just getting ready to get hit in the head. I think it all has to come from a place of sincerity, mm. really. At the high risk of, in terms of vanity, of people making the assumption that you are as stupid as your character. But you have to, you know what I mean? You have yeah. to. You, you can't, David Zucker used to always talk about like winking at the audience like sort of subconsciously or consciously letting the audience know that you're in on the joke, that you're not really this dumb. Well, I think one review I read of the first scary movie, um, somebody wrote something like, she must be as dumb as she acts. Or, aye, aye, aye. It wasn't quite like that, but it was something along those lines. I think it was more eloquently phrased. And I remember that stinging and I was young and I wanted to, it, it made me, it kicked, my pride kicked in and I, I felt like, fuck, I want to prove to the world that I'm, that I'm smart, which is a youthful idea to want, you know, that's a youthful desire because I'm not that smart. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Thanks. I'm sorry to interject. Yeah, sure you, you are. are. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, I, so I think that that has to be finessed. If, do, do you know what I'm saying Absolutely. in terms of camp? Yeah. If you, you must, you must make your audience believe that, uh, that you're a ding dong. And you did that terrifically. And I just want to push back. You are smart. And, and, and not just in this conversation now, but you're so deeply curious. And I feel like curiosity is, is, the, is, is intelligence to me. It's the idea to want to know more. So many people walk through this world without that curiosity. And that, to me, is intelligence. You are intelligent. Thanks, Evan. You're welcome. Okay, so let's talk mom. The show started in 2013. It's a multi-camera for CBS from Chuck Lorre, who has a track record of hits. So it seems like this show was set up for success. And as it turned out, it was a huge success. From what I know, television hours are grueling. Even if I didn't know, I can recognize that television requires long hours. How did your life outside of work change as a result of mom? Well, the great thing about, there were lots of great things about mom for the first, like it's by far the longest job, by far the longest job I've ever had at seven years, because before it's like three month jobs and then you're just sweating to find your next one, especially if your living expenses have gone up. <laughs> but, no, you got to um, heat that pool at a hundred uh, degrees. Yeah, you got to yeah. get it. <laughs> but you know, the hours were actually fantastic for a multi-cam. You work long days, Thursdays and Fridays, but the rest of the days, like, I remember the first time on, like, I got to go home at, I don't know, 1.30. Wow. I was just shocked. But what was awesome is that you spend, instead of waiting in your trailer or dressing room for uh, the, all, the whole entire process that happens 
during a day of shooting, you're actively rehearsing, you're figuring out the puzzle piece on the floor in your familiar sets. And that really appealed to the my theater background sensibility. I loved the puzzle solving of like, why the fuck would I cross over there? Oh, I'm gonna get that thing and I'll cross on that line and that'll set up Allison better for like I liked the mechanics, but in the mechanics, there is an expectation of line delivery of the rhythm of a line. And if I broke that, it fucked up other people's jokes. And oftentimes I was the pitcher to the batter. Yeah. So like, so there wasn't a an, sort of an adjustment in that arena, but I loved the, the thrill of, I mean, we would do two takes and then, you know, move on. And that appealed to me because I loved the pressure of the, it, like truly I kept, I would constantly think about a baseball analogy or a tennis analogy because but especially baseball, because it felt like, all right, it, it's up. The audience is here. Like, and the impatience of the process too, in the Chuck Lorre world. I mean, they have like their shows, they, you know, like it was very intimidatingly clear from day one that you have to bring your game. Right. Like I, I do like to ask actors about, if they were in the editing room, what they think their best, like when they ramp up on average, what take they would use. I think that I'm, I, I like to bring my point of view to the table immediately because I get worried about wasting people's time. But some actors will find it and they'll like use their, you know, the process and we'll, we'll do like 15 takes and they'll do something great or whatever, or unusable because that can spin out too. So I loved that idea. I, I, I found that really rewarding, but there was the day-to-dayness that I had never had before as well, which I found very comforting. And of course, like anybody, like there a degree of monotony. Couple more questions, do you have time? Yes, yes, I love I, I love to talk about myself. Great. Okay, so one thing, again, referencing this this recent episode of your podcast that had me so enthralled was the conversation about social media. And one of the joys about us engaging this conversation right now was that I had the, the privilege, immense privilege, of being able to access you directly. And that has been one of the joys of this podcast is how many celebrities I've been able to just be directly in conversation with because they are logged on. How online are you and has the last year affected your desire to be online, how long you are online, your relationship with being online? Oh, I don't like it at all. I I <laughs> I um I think early very early on I had some fun on Twitter. I would do weird things. I had a small following. I would take pictures of like I don't know, like I would take pictures of an object super close up and then slow, then release like three other pictures slowly expanding. Like, I don't know, it'd be like, guess what this is? And it turns out it was like a chocolate chip cookie or something like shit like that. Just like dumb. That. Or I did a whole Barbie thing and like, but the risk feels too high for my enjoyment level. Sure. And yeah, that that's how that's kind of how it feels now. And so I, I don't, I don't understand it. 
I guess is, and, and I'm not sure. And it, this is also very naive of me, but I don't really see longevity with a lot of platforms unless content shifts to something that is potentially deeper or more meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you guys, I mean, you guys are, you are a part of this world. How, what are your thoughts? Well, I thought that Jesse said something interesting on your podcast recently about sort of like how her relationship with social media has changed in terms of her seeking it out more for information and resources. I think that is definitely a shift that we've seen happen in social media. I still have fun with it. I recognize the fact that it can be quite toxic at times, but I try not to take that on. I feel like some people, they can allow that that negativity to sort of dictate how they operate on social media, which I I understand, you know, everyone has their own relationship with it and, and how they internalize it. I think I just have to have a little bit of a shield up in terms of getting what I want out of it and then getting out if it stops being fun. And I certainly take time off from using it. I enjoy showing off fashions that I love. I enjoy the just the bullshit of it all. But I also enjoy times in which I can become informed about what's going on in the world or resources that are available on it. To me, you take the rough with the smooth. I think not everyone handles the rough in the same way, and it can the, the rough can permeate them in a way that makes the smooth you know, just impossible. So I think to each their own, as much as I could say I hate it, I do love it, but I have a reticence to say I love it because it feels, it feels increasingly like I should hate it, right? Like that's just yes. the vibe. Yeah, I also, another idea too is I, I think... I think the idea of like simplistically defining who I am as an actor, like in that space as well, I don't, I don't want to present any kind of perfect lifestyle because it's not. And I, and when, when I've done like messy, it feels like maybe that's a little overexposure. So like, I, I think that, and, or maybe that's also, that's how I excuse my lack of desire. It's like, oh, I need to keep myself somewhat cloaked so I can play all different kinds of roles. But I think that's one thing that I love about your podcast is getting to have the podcast is again, going back to something we were speaking about earlier, is it allows for long form discussion. You're allowed to be complex one day, simple another day, frivolous one minute, talking about social justice another. You can be many aspects of who you are. You can be your 360 degree self because of the, the literal space that podcast allows for. Okay, so let's end by going philosophical. You know, we've been talking a lot about quarantine and the impact that this last year has had on us. Not just I want to show you the hat that I knit. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I've been knitting. I heard, and you've been knitting. Oh, by the way, just to answer a question you'd mentioned on another podcast, I think it's totally appropriate to knit while podcasting. Um, that's just my two cents. Yes. I Absolutely. Although, I don't know, guys. If I had brought my needles in here and I was like this, would that... It would be okay. I just feel like it's it's, it's the totally. kind of activity okay. that it's possible to still mentally engage. So that's just that's just my Thank philosophy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So as I mentioned, 
quarantine, crazy. We all know, we, we've all been through it. We're all going through this together. What is one thing that this last year of relative isolation and just general societal despondency, if we can call it that, has taught you that you will bring forward into the new world that is Ooh. beginning to emerge? Just like a light question to end on. <laughs> I love I, For me, it has been a reprioritization. It has felt really good. This feels like the first time I can afford to choose projects that I really want to do and have loved hanging out with my kid. I love being on this tiny boat. I love being in this, in like the camp. Like I, I, it feels so good to not be, to not necessarily have my goal be like, what the fuck is the next thing? I, you know what it is? I find myself slightly less competitive in the best of ways. Like I don't, I'm not comparing myself quite as much. And maybe that's also a gift of age too. My partner, Michael, when we first started dating, he constantly reiterated how life is short until I heard it mm. actually. And that was something I needed to really embrace. Like that fucking idea that, uh, do I get, re how much reward do I get with other, like seeking other people's approval? And in fact, like I was thinking about, <laughs> I was thinking about why I'm so lucky to have so many gay fans. And I was do thinking- Do you ever? I'm so lucky. I am so fortunate. And I was thinking about sort of what, what that quality in me is. This is self-absorbed. When I came back from the bathroom, this is what I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about. I want to talk about it. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. My I didn't know if you knew how big of a gay icon you were. So I'm... I'm and I could not be more grateful. My conclusion, or well, at least a theory is that I think I have something that's really, I, maybe I expose my vulnerability in a way that, that people can, I, can identify with maybe. Do you think that that's it? <laughs> yes. And I think it's the most beautiful thing. And one thing you said earlier is you said that your partner kept telling you these words that life is short, but you mentioned that you were ready to hear it. And I think that that's such a, an interesting lesson. And perhaps, as you said, perhaps it comes with age, but I think it's just a reminder to all of us that we can have these lessons put forth before us all of our lives, but it's not until we are ready to receive them that we can really hear them. Even if it was there all along, sorry to make this about the Wizard of Oz, but it's like, you know, it was there all along, right? She just wasn't seeing it. And I think that like, it always comes back to that. And so it's a lovely thing, whether through age or through experience that you're able to sort of take that message and, and internalize it now. But bringing it back to the gay thing, yes, I think that that level of vulnerability is part of it. But I also think you are so 
goddamn talented. And I think because you're so comedically inclined, we don't necessarily regard comedic performance the same way we do dramatic, even just looking at sort of like what gets an Oscar, you know what I mean? It's why there are so many great comedic performances that just aren't recognized. And I think I look at, again, like the house bunny to me, I, I say criterion collection and like, I'm joking, but I'm not. I'm not joking. Thank you. I think that's something that gay fans connect with is, and again, going back to the camp thing, it's like the seriousness with which you take your comedy. And that is camp. I think Evan too, I also don't know what my face is doing. (laughs) (laughs) Zoom has been really hard. Fair. I want to thank you. I want to offer just one unsolicited guest that I would love to see on Unqualified. Yes. Um, I want to see Sarah Michelle Geller on Unqualified. Oh, yes. Evan, I know that you love her. Love her. And I okay. feel like I was looking, I read through your entire guest list from the jump and I was like, there is an omission here. And it is Sarah Michelle Gellar. And especially because Scary Movie is not only has the character of Buffy, but is referencing I Know What You Did Last Summer. And also you reference The Grudge in one of the later Scary Movie films. It just feels very, uh, to use a Yiddish term, beshert. And so I just want to speak it into existence. Okay, Evan, can I ask you a quick question? Always. Can you sum up in like three sentences your love for Sarah Michelle Gellar? Yeah, I can. I found Buffy at a time when I was being really bullied in school and being made fun of for things that I didn't understand. I didn't yet know I was gay when I was being called a faggot. So these words were not only hurtful, but I didn't know what to do with them. Oh, God, Evan, I'm so sorry. I think people go through it a lot worse than I had it. Yeah, but well, but uh, I, I found this show called Buffy and there was just something about her being this powerful female and something you spoke about earlier. It's like, it wasn't always about love for Buffy. It wasn't always about a man. Obviously there was Angel, don't get me wrong, but there were her friendships. There was her mother. There was her mentors. She was just so complex. I feel like Sarah Michelle Gellar is as talented as Meryl Streep and I have been lucky and, and and I just I chose this thing early on in my life and I was like this is going to be the sun in my universe and it's been that way ever since at the end of the day whenever I get really down about anything and I swear I just recognize it's like how lucky I am to exist in a world where Sarah Michelle Gellar exists and knows who I am and I will reject any unhappiness that is filling me because I remember that and hold on to it And I think she has that quality for a lot of gay people. And I do think that you possess a similar quality for a lot of LGBTQ young people that just see an empowered female doing it and and doing it well and doing it so well. And I think it permeates your soul in a way and you just want to root for them. It's like, I'm rooting for Sarah Michelle Gellar. I'm rooting for Anna Faris. And I always thought that there was something like sort of something fundamentally tragic, like Judy Garland-esque or something like my desire to be liked is so apparent. I wear it on my sleeve. And so therefore I'm like, oh, poor thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you think it's empowered and like decision-making. And you know, I I think it's it's all wrapped up, isn't it? And like, it's the 
complexity. And I think this love for female celebrities that a lot of specifically gay men have, I think it carries them through some of their darkest times is just seeing these empowered women. And it's not necessarily always in the role of like a Buffy where she's kicking butt, even just seeing your filmography and seeing you just succeed in so much of, of, of your work. I think it just, it's, it empowers people. Of course it empowers women. Of course it probably empowers queer women, gay men. It's, it's just, there's a lot of empowerment here. Um, and it's a lovely thing. And so I want to wrap up by thanking you. I want to just express gratitude for your vulnerability, for your intelligence, for your filmography. We got to give a little gratitude to that. And just being just such a cool person. I am. Thank you. Yeah, this was a highlight of my time here on this earth. I kid you not. Same. Absolutely. Hey, thank you guys so much. And thank you for doing what you're doing. I think you have an amazing podcast and I love how you navigate conversation. Thanks. And I would actually, I'd love to pick your brain at a later date. I'm here for the picking. I'm here for the picking. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. And now I'll do a little Shelly. Shut up, Evan. Oh, I'm a little rusty. Hang on. Shut up, Evan. Oh, I'm so rusty. I used to be able to... Shut up, shut up, Evan. Anyway. Shut Up, Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Krauss, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.